When I was a younger guy, uh, I worked at a camp. That's actually how I came to faith in Christ. I uh, came from a family, nominal Christian. You've heard, probably heard that before. And I uh, came to faith in Christ at this evangelical Bible camp that my mom just sent us to to get rid of us for a week. <laughs> came back to haunt her, I think. <laughs> uh, it was fantastic. Uh, week, I, I came to faith in Christ. And then that camp actually became kind of my church. I did, we didn't really go to a church that believed much of anything about about Jesus, they used his name, but didn't believe much about him. And so in the end, um, my faith really lived for the weeks that I went to Christian camp during the summers. And eventually, I, I ended up working at that camp. When I was working there, uh, it became apparent to me, something that I didn't know when I was just attending, and that is that uh, certain people at the camp, especially certain people who worked there, were thought of more highly than others based upon a particular skill. The skill surprisingly, was barefoot water skiing. Uh, I we was on a lake in the Seattle area, and apparently to, the ability to barefoot water ski made you, you know, somewhat godlike in the minds of lots and lots, of, lots and lots of people there. And I remember following after one of the guys who could barefoot. This, by the way, were the, back in the days where in order to barefoot water ski, you had to do it at the end of a rope, and uh, you had to drop a ski, and then you drop another ski, and they just sped up as fast as you, they could go, and you, you started to to do it. And there were only a couple guys on our staff who could do this thing. And I remember following them around the, the campus. And when people would find out, or this, the campers would find out they could barefoot water ski, it was, like the, the, it was like Moses was coming and the people were parting and saying, oh, behold the man of God. You know, they would ask these guys questions. So can I see the bottom of your feet? Are they calloused? And that sort of thing. And I've noticed, quite honestly, as I've grown up, since that time, that every small community I'm, I'm part of, and I don't mean that by like small town, although that's the case too, uh, little subcultures I'm a part of, so if I'm into basketball, or if I'm into baseball, if I'm into dance, or if I'm into, I'm not into dance, but if, if I'm, whatever it is that I'm a part of, there's, there's a thing in that little subgroup that establishes somebody as being more capable, better in that group than, than others. So when I, was, when I played basketball when I was young, it was, it was the high school kids who could dunk. Everybody knew who could dunk, right? There was a few people. And once you established that you could actually dunk the basketball, you'd walk down the hallways of your school and the seas, the seas would part. I was told by a friend who was really into ice skating that a, a quad, I don't know what that is, a quad, I think it's four, right, um, as the name shows, four times spinning around. Um, I know the sow cow, so I know that much. Anyway, the, the, the quad was the thing that you had to be able to do. And if you could, you were considered to be the very much the top of the heap in that, in that sport, in that, in that area. And people would treat you with a certain kind of regard and respect and say behind your back, oh, she can do the quad. You know, she might not be very nice, but she can do the quad. Every one of our areas of life, there's something that we're able to do that establishes us above others in the minds of a subgroup. Now, I say that because it gives you a good indication as to what was going on in the city and, and the church in Corinth. There was a thing. Had you attended that church and were part of that community, there was a thing that you were able to do that made you top of the heap, that people would part the seas for you, would whisper behind your back, have you seen that thing that they can do? And that particular thing was speaking in tongues. 
When I say tongues, uh, what I mean is the ability to speak other languages not known to the speaker, but maybe known to the person who's hearing, right? So German. Or the ability to speak in what they called ecstatic utterance. Now, you have to understand there's a reason why it is that the, the people in Corinth believe this. They, most of the people came from pagan backgrounds, right? So nobody in the ancient world was non-religious. Everybody's religious, just like today. Everybody's religious. They say they're not. Everybody's religious. So they had a certain set of beliefs, and they worshiped certain gods. And when they worshiped those particular gods, the way that you knew that they were close to those gods, right? So if you worship Dionysus, the way you knew you were close to Dionysus is if Dionysus inhabited you. It took over your body in the worship service. And guess what would happen if Dionysus took over your body in the worship service? You would, you would speak in what ecstatic utterance. And people would step back and say, oh, look how close this person is to the God. They've become one together. So people from that kind of background, when they came into the Christian church, there was one particular gift that they thought was better than every other one, and that was the gift of tongues because it was a sign to them that the Spirit of God was really, really with that person who was speaking it. So if, if you're going to have a gift, guys, it better be tongues. Seek tongues. Want Tongues, long for tongues. It's a sign that the Holy Spirit is really with you. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he comes to the church and he knows that this is happening, he addresses the problem in a, in a few different ways. One, one of them is to start by saying, listen, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, all, listen, all the gifts are necessary, guys. So I get it. Tongues is a real thing and it's valuable and it can be useful, but it's not the only thing. There are lots of other gifts, and they all work together to form parts of the body. And if one of the gifts isn't functioning properly, it's like you walking around with a bad knee. You know, the church will hobble. So every gift is necessary. Every gift is, is needed. And the way that you get those particular gifts, Paul says, is that God distributes them as he wills. So it's not your choice regarding what gift you have and what gift you don't have. God gives the gifts, and every gift should be honored, even the ones that you don't think are all that honorable, because they're all helpful and useful to the functioning, the proper functioning of the body. But most importantly, the goal of the gifts isn't to show off and to say to everyone, look what I can do. God is with me. Part the seas. The goal of the gifts is to edify your brothers and sisters. But if you want to know what the real sign of spiritual life is, the real sign that the Holy Spirit is upon you, it's not the gift of tongues. It's not the gifts at all. Paul says, let me show you the most excellent way. In fact, that's the last line in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. So here, I'm going to show you the most excellent way in 1 Corinthians 13. It's probably one of the most important passages in the Bible about spiritual gifts, about the Holy Spirit's work. So how do you know that you are a Holy Spirit person? What is the Spirit trying to produce in you primarily? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 will tell you and as the title of my sermon is, by the way, the title of my sermon at every point in my sermon is after a famous song. I'm so excited about it. The first, the t what's love got to do with it? Huh? Hmm? Tina Turner? Okay. Dates me a little bit. 
So, so the answer to the question is love. What was the mark? It's love. And Paul's going to go out of his way to talk about this particular thing as it pertains to the sign that the Spirit's with you. And so here's how we're going to do this. The three steps. First of all, all you need is love. Da, 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 da. Yeah? Now, come on. That's good. This one's better. Uh, what is love? Maybe don't hurt me. Yeah? 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 And then finally, love will go on. Now, I know that Celine Dion sang a song called My Heart Will Go On, and that's the one I'm referring to, but I called it love because I don't like Celine Dion. Anyway, um, <laughs> is that blasphemy here in Canada? Is that? So here they are, right? All you need is love. Verse one. See, if I speak, so let me show you the most excellent way. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, then. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. Now, i got to show you something in, in this passage. Paul is actually giving you, like in his mind, the most spiritual-looking things that he could possibly imagine. Like if you saw somebody else doing them, you would say, Whoa! The Holy Spirit is on them. They can barefoot ski. So notice, speak in the tongues of men and angels, uh, gift of prophecy so great that you can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, a faith that can move mountains, uh, give all I possess to the poor, and even give over my body to hardship. That's a reference probably to martyrdom, giving myself over to even death. So let's talk about those just for a minute. Like th these are, for Paul, the most spiritual-looking things that you could do. The first one we've already kind of talked about, the speaking in tongues, right? Ecstatic utterance. The people in Corinth believed if you had gone to their worship service, right, and showed up, you would hear people speaking in ecstatic utterance and everyone around you would be whispering, saying, oh, look at the Spirit and dwell them. Look at the Spirit possess them in this moment. They're in this ecstatic trance moment where the Spirit is on them. Can't you see the evidence of the Spirit? That's a spiritual person. And then he says, well, what about prophecy? You imagine somebody prophesying. What does he mean by that? Well, there's, a, there's an old story Charles Spurgeon tells that I think is a really good illustration of what prophecy looks like. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist, so this is not the kind of thing that a Baptist would normally do. <laughs> uh, Spurgeon was um, preaching a sermon on one occasion, and he, he ended up telling a story later about what happened to him while he was preaching this sermon to somebody. Spurgeon used to, he was a pastor of a church of like 6,000 people that all met in the massive, massive music hall in London years ago, and by years ago, I mean in the 18th century, 19th century. And so he's one of the most famous preachers of, of all time. So thousands of people there, and this is what he said happened. Uh, he said, while preaching in the hall on one occasion... I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd, and I said, there is a man sitting there. We're going to do this in a minute. There is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays, and it was last Sunday morning that it was open, and he made $9, so it's not his shop. He made $9, 
and there were $4 profit out of it, meaning that he kept back four for himself. He gave $5 to his boss, four back for himself. He sold his soul, pointing to the guy. He sold his soul for $4. Later, a city missionary, so Spurgeon's still talking, a city missionary, when doing his rounds, met with this man and seeing that he was reading one of my sermons, he asked him the question, do you know Mr. Spurgeon? And the man said, yes. I have every reason to know him. I've been to hear him and under his preaching. But you need to know, by God's grace, I have become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you how it happened? He says to the missionary. Well, I went to his church, and I took my seat in the middle of the place, and Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me, and in his sermon, he pointed to me, and he told the entire congregation, all those thousands of people, that I was a shoemaker, and that I kept my shop open on Sundays, and I did. And I should not have minded that, but, but he also said that I made $9 the Sunday before, and that there were $4 profit out of it, and I did. I did take $9 that day, and $4 was the profit, but how should he know that? I couldn't tell. Then it struck me that it might be God who had spoken to my soul through him. So the next Sunday, I shut up my shop, and at first, I was afraid to go again and hear him, lest he should tell people more about me. <laughs> but afterwards, I went, and the Lord met with me, and he saved, he saved my soul. So how does Spurgeon know What's, what's going on there? This is what people talk about. They're talking about prophecies. That he, he get, was given knowledge by God somehow that this guy had been stealing. And he, and he expresses it. Now, let me tell you. If, hearing that story, if, if Spurgeon were here, wouldn't you go, oh my goodness, the spirit is on you, man. Like Remarkable. So it says that Paul talks about faith. He says that what if I have a faith that can even move mountains? It's a great story about a guy named George Muller. George Muller is a guy, in my opinion, who had some of the greatest faith of any person I've ever read about uh, since the New Testament. He's a remarkable dude. Muller opened all these orphanages in England years and years ago when the Industrial Revolution was wreaking havoc on, on the people of the day. And they used to force kids to work. And so all these children were homeless and parentless, and they were around in the city, and so Miller went around and he'd gather them up and he'd put them in his, in his orphanages and take care of them. The crazy thing about Miller is that he would, he would actually not ever ask anybody for money. Like, he had to provide for the, he had to resource this ministry, but he would never go out and say, uh, can you guys give me some cash? He wouldn't go to church and say that, wouldn't do anything like that. Instead, he said, I'm just going to pray about it. The Lord knows our needs. I'm going to tell the Lord, and the Lord's going to work it out. So on one occasion, he had all these hundreds of orphans. He had different orphanages around the country, but in this particular occasion, the one that he was at, they, had the, they got up in the morning, and they didn't have any bread or milk for the day. They didn't have anything for breakfast. And so instead of you know, calling breakfast off or telling the kids to stay in their rooms, he said, just come out. We're, we're going to sit down, set the tables. He tells the staff, set the tables as if we're going to eat. So all the kids sit down. They're all sitting there, and Muller prays. There's nothing in front of them. 
Servants have nothing to give them. Mueller prays, oh God, thank you for the bounty we are about to receive. Knowing full well he doesn't have any of it. Thank you, Father, for the bread and for the milk. Amen. And the kids sit there and they look down the tables to see when the bread and milk are coming and nothing's happening. So this is a really awkward moment. At the door, there's a knock. And there's this baker who, who bursts into the room and says, Mr. Muller, I, I apologize. I tried to get here a little bit earlier, but I, I was awakened this morning at 2 a.m. And I, I got to tell you that I, I couldn't go back to sleep. And it just, I, I felt like God needed me to bake bread for you. So I've brought it with me. Can I give it to your, to your children? And Muller said, yes, that would be fine. He passed it all out to the kids, and Muller said later that he prayed in his mind, Lord, that's half of the, the answer. As soon as the man left, apparently, uh, here, they heard a crash outside. Muller got up, and he walked outside. He looked there, and there was a milk cart that had broken down. In fact, because the baker had gone out so quickly, he had gotten in the way and the milk cart had broken down and the milk was going to spoil. And the milkman said, Mr. Muller, I'm sorry, I can't take all, I got to go get my cart fixed and I have this milk on it. Would you like to have the milk? And Mr. Muller said, well, that would be fine. Hey, listen, I tell you what, I'm, I don't have the faith to do that kind of thing. I don't, I wish I did. did not that be remarkable to be able to trust God in that kind of way? My shoelace breaks, and I'm like, oh, you, you know? Be phenomenal. You look at somebody with that kind of faith. If you met George Miller, you'd be like, part to seize, guys, because there's a man of God. Look at the way that the, he, has, he has faith. that can even move mountains. What if I give all I possess to the poor? It's a story in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, actually, about this guy Barnabas. He was uh, one of the... He was actually became Paul's traveling companion to go and reach out to all sorts of people to share the gospel with them and plant churches among them. But before that, he was just a, just a normal dude in, in a church. Um, he had an extra piece of property, though, you know, up in the shoe swap or whatever. And um, he was in church, and he realized that there are a lot of people in the church who had needs, especially in those days, you know. And so uh, sitting there one day... He sensed, I guess, from the spirit that he was going to go, supposed to go sell this property. He did. He went and sold the property. He took the proceeds. And the next Sunday, he came and he brought, you know, like fat stacks down to the front. And he laid them at the feet of the apostles and said, listen, I know that we have a lot of needs in the church. I'm going to give this stuff to you guys so you can distribute it as you think it needs to be distributed. Can you imagine if somebody did that today? And I just sold off my property. Here's all the money. Use it, use it for what you, what you need. Imagine if that happened, you and I would be, wow. I mean, if there's ever been a sign that the Holy Spirit would be on somebody, it's that kind of thing, right? The giving. How about the handing over your, your body for suffering? It's one of the names of the, that's one of the language, that's the language that's used here at the end. I give over my body to hardship that I may boast. Probably a reference to the most extreme sacrifice for Christ for the sake of, of identifying with Jesus. Um, one of the names that you should know in the history of the church is a guy named Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was one of the first bishops to ever be appointed 
He, uh, he knew the Apostle John, who wrote the book of John and uh, wrote Revelation. And one of, you know, the, the, the disciple Jesus loved was, was John. And so he, uh, he appointed Polycarp as one of his bishops. And the, um, Polycarp grew very old. He was in his 80s when the government changed and they decided they wanted to get rid of all the Christians and they thought well, we need to identify that guy the most influential Christian and it's Polycarp so they came and they got him they wanted him to recant right they want to put him in front of a public arena and say to him listen if you you need to turn away from Jesus publicly so all the other people who you who follow you will also turn away from Jesus John Stott commentator pastor in England he he wrote about this. He said these, these words. He said, it was February 2nd, probably in the year A.D. 156. The venerable bishop, Polycarp, who had fled from the city at the pleading of his congregation, because they knew he was going to be killed, he was tracked down to his hiding place. When they found him, he made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors. Hey, you guys want a cup of tea here? And he asked permission to retire for prayer, which he did for two hours to pray for his captors and others. Then, as they traveled into the city, right, like in an open back uh, horse-drawn cart, as they traveled into the city, the officer in charge urged him to recant. Hey, come on, what, what harm can it do, Polycarp, he asked, to sacrifice to the emperor? You just need to pinch a little incense in front of everyone and it'll all, all this will go away. But Polycarp refused. On arrival, he was roughly pushed out of the carriage and brought before the proconsul, right, the governor, in, in the amphitheater, who in front of hundreds addressed him, you know, bad cop now, respect your years, swear by the genius of Caesar, swear and I'll release you, just revile Christ. With all these people watching, Polycarp replied some of the most famous words in the history of the Christian church since the New Testament. He said, for 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But the proconsul, he persisted, swear by the genius of Caesar, I have, I have wild beasts. If you don't change your mind, I'll throw you to them. Call them said Polycarp. Since you make light of the beasts, I'll have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. Angry Jews and Gentiles then gathered wood for the pile. Polycarp stood by the stake. He asked not to be fastened to it. He said, I'm not going to run away. Just light it up. And he prayed out loud. He said, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. And the fire was lit. But as the wind drove the flames away from him and prolonged his suffering, a soldier put an end to his misery with a sword. So you guys think the Holy Spirit was with this guy? I mean, I mean the evidence is pretty strong, Yeah. So here's Paul's point with this. I want you to take all of those stories, all of those examples, and Paul's throwing them all in your mind, and he's saying, all of that, as grand and wonderful as it is, tongues and prophecy and giving and giving over your life, all of that, 
if it's not done in love, complete waste of time. If those things are done for personal glory rather than the service of others, they're ultimately empty. See, love, not giftedness, is the sign of true Holy Spirit vitality. Love. In fact, it is possible to take your gift and to use it in a way that is profoundly great and profoundly unloving. So I'm, I'm pretty good with words. And the Lord has given me an ability to, to do that over, over time. My wife doesn't like it in our discussions. Um, but there, it's come to, to be a help in many, in many circumstances. I was at one point at a, at a fair, the State Fair of Washington State, where I went to, a, they had these booths, you know, these religious booths. One of them was the Baha'i Faith booth. And I went with a friend, and we, I said to him, why don't we go over to the Baha'i Faith booth and try to engage them? in Christian things. And so I, I did. I stood at the Baha'i Faith booth and I started to engage the guy who was sitting across from me. There were two people sitting there. There were other people kind of mingling around and talking and immediately we got into a bit of a discussion, discussion, a debate about you know, the nature of who Jesus was and Baha'i Faith is, derives from, from Islam to some degree. And so like I, we were engaging about that sort of matter. It started really peaceful but as time went on I, I decided that rhetorically the best effect would be to raise my voice. Right? And to be more argumentative because there's nothing that will ever win people like yelling at them. So um, <laughs> I started to get really upset and they got upset. And finally, the guy said, Listen, listen, you need to go. And I said, What are you afraid of my arguments? I said it louder than that. You're afraid of my arguments? Then he drew this other person in and we started yelling at each other. And I was yelling at him. You know, I, was, I was right. I knew it. I was getting him scoring massive points. My friend was behind me going, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's my hype guy back there. Come on. And then um, finally, he called security. The fair security showed up, grabbed my arm, touched me. Man of God, sharing the gospel with these people. Fine, fine, I'll go. I walked away. I remember after this, me and my friends used to give each other high fives, and we used to miss a lot because, you know, it wasn't. But this high five was perfect. Whack to my friend, and I thought, yeah, that's a sign from God that we did the right, right thing, did we? Guys, I was brilliant in this debate. All my points didn't stammer. It was all coming straight at the dude, telling him about the love of Christ. But in the process of telling him about the love of Christ, I, I left out the love of Christ. See, you can do lovely Christian things in the most unloving, unchristian way. And if you do, all your giftedness is meaningless. See, the sign is, is, is love. See, all you need is love. Second, what, what is love? Man, you guys are going to have to listen quicker than what you're doing. What is love? Baby, don't hurt. Verse four. Well, it's patient and it's kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. It's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I'm assuming you've heard that passage before, yes? Okay, 
Uh, I used to, the first time I was ever in a wedding, I was a candle lighter, my sister's wedding. The, they told me that you're going to light all the candles. She decided that she wanted to have like every candle. It was a festival of lights, her wedding, right? So all these candles that were up high, and they gave me this wand thing that had a little hook on the end, and they said, you need to keep the wick going. The lady who was in charge said, you need to keep the wick going so that it doesn't burn out, because that'll be really awkward, and your sister will get mad at you for the rest of her life because you ruined her wedding. So keep the wick going, okay? I got wick, got it. And they kept repeating it to me. There's another girl who was lighting candles with me, and as we started, she kept her wick going, and she was really focused on it. I thought, well, I, I better really go for this. And so I started, I got a little aggressive, I'm not gonna lie, with the wick, and I started to push it out a little bit more and push it out a little bit more. And before you knew it, uh, I, you know, I had a, an inferno going at the top of that thing. <laughs> But then I was freaked out because I was like, I can't pull it back in because I don't know it's going to stick and then go right back in and go out. So I kind of just went with it. I had this huge flame. The other girl had it perfect. I had this huge flame and I was lighting these candles. Some of them were wilting as I was doing it. Just in the. Needless to say, uh, they, they, I've never lit candles for a wedding since. Most of my friends ended up, because they, they were either there or had heard about this because I told them about it, said when I got to, the, to their weddings, either I was a groomsman or they would ask me to read. Right, Jeff, you're good at reading? Read. What would they ask me to read? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, right? Because Paul and love. Isn't it lovely that Paul broke out in this wedding text in the middle of talking about spiritual gifts? What's interesting about it, the reason we put this in our weddings is because we want to say something like, this is such a beautiful picture of love. Isn't it warm your heart to hear these words spoken out loud? And the answer is, yeah, of course it is. The problem is that's not the way Paul intends this. What he's done here, he's basically said, look, let me tell you guys about what love looks like because none of you are like this. Not none of you north, none of you Corinth, the way you guys are acting it's so unloving. You're so into this giftedness and yet so unloving. So let me tell you what love is like with each phrase. Let me poke you in the ribs. It's patient. It's kind. That's the summary. The way to understand this, in fact, is Gordon Fee, one of the commentators, said that and he was, he was studying this. He, he said the, the way Paul really intends this is for you to put your name in place of the word love. Jeff is patient. Jeff is kind. Jeff is not self-seeking. Jeff is not... And then see at the end whether or not it's applicable to you. So let's look at it. The first two, patience and kind, are kind of the big categories. Love is patient, meaning long-suffering. That's a word that's used in some of the older translations. A great way of saying it. Yes, long-suffering. You should bring that one back because love is long-suffering. Love puts up with a lot. Those of you who have babies know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes? Oh, come on. You were up last night and the night before and the last 30 nights with the, the jerk, right, who's been, they don't care about your sleep. They're just up and they're looking at you. Hey, let's play. You're like, I don't want to play. They mess themselves in the most unwanted circumstances, right? You put their nice clothes on. You go to the wedding. Blow out! My wife used to yell that, blow out! <laughs> and you, you hold them. You're like, how did all of that come out of something so small? 
I gotta go clean you up. It's not like they do it just once, they do it over and over again, right? Till they're about 19. <laughs> Used to call my son Destructo because everywhere he'd walk around the house. <laughs> what is this over here? <laughs> cry over everything. It's okay. <laughs> cry and cry and cry and cry, jerks. Why do, you, why do you put up with them? Well, you know why. Because you love them. Because love is patient. It's, it suffers a long time. And the people you love the most, you think, yeah, I've suffered a long time with you. But you don't care because I just love you so much. It's patient like that. It's also, it's also kind, which is the flip side of that. Yeah, patience is willing to receive a whole bunch of trash and still keep going. And kindness is, I'm going to not only receive the trash, but I'm going to offer to you kindness. Grace, a willingness to love e even positively. So I, my wife didn't know when she married me that I talked as much as I do. And so like our marriage has been her walking around the house and me following her, talking to her about everything on my mind. And after a while, she's like, Oh, okay, uh, yeah, uh, 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 and I'm, I'm like, you're not listening to me, are you? You're not listening to me. What? She takes her headphones. No, she doesn't do that. <laughs> but you're not listening to me. Uh, I am, I am, I am. She puts up with so much from me. She's willing to receive all of that, and yet she still, she still acts positively toward me and takes care of me and looks after me. That's a sign of love. Patience and kind. And by the way, if I were to describe the love of Jesus in your life, what words would you use? Well, he's patient with me. And man, is he kind. Love is patient, love is kind. And then he gets in some specifics about it. It's not proud. It's the word not puffed up is the word there. Um, Kiwis, New Zealanders say you, you, that you're not up yourself. Right? People in sports now say, oh, look at that guy, he's smelling himself, right? He makes dumps the basketball. That's not love. So love is not self-focused like that. In fact, that's a line. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't dishonor others. It doesn't keep records of wrongs. It's a great old story about a husband and wife who are in counseling, and they're they're meeting, they can't get through any of their issues, and so the counselor says, listen, next week what I want you to do is take this box and I want you to write down on a card every time your spouse makes you angry about something, write down why you're angry and put it in the box. Well, they go home and they do this for a week, right? Both of them are putting cards in the box all week long instead of yelling at each other. I'd like to yell at you right now, but, you know. <laughs> you come back to the counselor Counselor sits across from him and says, all right, let's start with her problems first. All right, she's got a whole list. Going through them all. He doesn't listen to me enough. He doesn't care for me enough. In this particular moment, he yelled at me. Didn't put away the trash when I asked. Like all the little to big things, all of this stuff. Pile of cards. Finally, they turned over to the guy. He has a stack of cards in front of him, and the counselor starts to read them. He reads them out loud. First one, it says, I love you. And the second one, I love you. I love you. I love you. Well, that's what it looks like to keep no record of wrongs. I describe you. 
you know, when you have in your discussions with your significant others or your family members, you don't bring up all the other things that they have ever done wrong before and include it into this moment so that they can see the framework for how bad they've been. So how do you do? When you, when you go through the list and you, you hear all of these things, you know, self, not self-seeking, doesn't dishonor others, all, all of the words, patient, kind, you look at yourself and say, yeah, if I put my name in there, it says Jeff, Jeff is all those things. Because here's what Paul's trying to get at, that if you're a genuine Holy Spirit person, this is the effect. Finally, love will go on. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Please notice what I just read, that the gifts will cease. In your mind, you should be thinking, when? We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, and then we shall see face to face. See, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This is a great passage. There's a big debate about spiritual gifts uh, the sign, what they call the sign gifts or the miraculous gifts, like tongues, prophecy, these sorts of things, words of wisdom and knowledge. There's a big debate in the Christian church about this. Do these things, were these things just part of the foundation of the Christian church, though they were around in Paul's days, day, but then they stopped because we have the Bible now and we don't need them? Or have they continued? And should we expect them to be operating in the present time? If, you're part, if you believe that first view, you're called a cessationist because you believe in the cessation, the ceasing of the spiritual gifts. If you're, if you're not part of that first group, you say, no, I think that they continue. You're called a continuationist because they could not come up with a more clever name. Cessationist, continuationist, who yell at each other. Charismatic churches, continuationist. Non-charismatic churches, cessationist. Mean things are said either way. And it all revolves around this question. When will the gifts cease? Now, here's what I want to show you. This passage tells you when. Explicitly. You say where? Uh, Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part We prophesy in part, but, here's your answer, when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. That word completeness means the, literally reads the perfect. When the perfect comes, the gifts will be no no longer necessary. When's that? When is the perfect coming? Come yet? This has got to be a reference to the return of Christ. Now that means, listen, that means that you should expect these gifts to continue in the present age. Paul is affirming that here. That these gifts will continue to be operative in the present age, but after that, not necessary at all. And then he gives you a couple of illustrations to try to drive home his point, right? He talks about when children become adults. 
Um, my wife gave me permission to share this with you. When she was a little girl, she used to go to the sock. She had a sock box with all her socks in there. And every morning when she would choose, go to choose some pair of socks to wear, she would sit by the sock box and take every other pair out and apologize to it for not wearing it that day. <laughs> I'm so sorry, pink socks, because I love you, but tomorrow, maybe? Right? She, she doesn't do this now. I, don't, I never found her doing Why? Well, you say, well, she, she grew up. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that she, when you, in your children, you think that certain things like socks are animate objects and they have wills and minds and those sorts of things because you see movies about that, but that they're just socks. And as an adult, you look at it, you think it's cute, but you're like, no, it's just, just socks. What Paul's saying is that we live in the present age where we're like children. We ask lots of questions about God and what he's going on and why is it like this, God, and how about this? And to be honest with you, some of the questions aren't even that good because we're so childish in the way we think. But then when the perfect comes, we will become adults. And we will think clearly about these things and we'll understand the world. Isn't that lovely to think that in heaven you'll understand, you'll know as you're fully known? It's, it's like, he gives another illustration, it's like uh, looking at somebody through a mirror. Now, in those days, a mirror is like the back of your pots, you know, those copper backs to your pots, and if you turn it over, you look fun. it's like a funhouse mirror thing. And if I'm looking at my wife through the pot, I'm like, oh, you look so funny. Do you know? Look, it, it, it makes your ears oblong and your forehead way too big and all of these things. And then I look face to face and think, oh, it's kind of like you, but not, I see clearly now. Paul's saying is that we look today through a, a glass dimly, through the pot dimly. We, you can see the contours of how it all works, but you don't totally understand. But one day, face to face, one day you'll, you'll know as you're, as you're fully known. So the gifts operate today, but not always. They will cease. Do you know what will always continue? Do you know what will always continue? Love. So here's my last line in this entire sermon. You ready? What is, what is the mark of a Holy Spirit person? It's not ecstatic speech, great as that might be. It's not having insight and prophecy, great as that is. It's not great preaching, good as that is. It's not miraculous powers, not even dying as a martyr. All you need is love. Let me pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your grace, thankful for the love that you've given to us and shed on our hearts in Christ, and we're thankful for the Holy Spirit who now is taking this word and wants to reproduce this love in us, this patient, kind, not self-seeking love in us. Would that be the case? Would that be the mark of we who call ourselves Christians? We Holy Spirit people, Father, would you take that and make that in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships at work, in every area of our lives, would you take love and make it our mark? And we ask it in Jesus' good name.